This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Joint Action. This podcast is dedicated to all those out there who have osteoarthritis. On the show, we unpack the truths and demystify the myths about the disease and its management. If you have joint pain and want to know more about how to manage it from the world's best experts, you've come to the right place. Without further ado, it is time to welcome your host, David Hunter. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Joint Action Podcast, where we have the chance to look at what is a really, really important topic for our healthcare system. The volume of joint replacement surgeries performed for osteoarthritis is not sustainable. Now, I know you're going to look at that and say that's a little bit provocative and unrealistic, but I think we're about to present to you data to suggest the opposite. And studies have shown that the rates of joint replacement surgeries have increased steadily over the past decade. In Australia alone, there are about 110,000 joint replacements performed every year. And if we look at other countries like the US and the UK, it gets into the millions of joint replacements every year. Really importantly, from a healthcare system perspective, this number is expected to rise with the aging population and increasing rates of people above a healthy weight. Furthermore, the COVID-related cancellations and hospital restrictions will likely impact the provision of joint replacement for years to come. So although joint replacement surgery is an effective treatment for end-stage osteoarthritis, the volume of joint replacement surgeries being conducted places a huge burden on the surgical workforce and the healthcare system. There are potentially less costly and effective alternatives that we might get into in today's show. We're joined by Alana Ackerman, who's a research professor in the School of Public Health and Preventive Medicine at Monash University and Deputy Director of the Monash Cabrini Department of Musculoskeletal Health and Clinical Epidemiology. Alana is a musculoskeletal epidemiologist and an experienced orthopedic physiotherapist. She completed her PhD at the University of Melbourne in 2006. Over the past 15 years, Alana has led a program of clinical and population-based research designed to quantify osteoarthritis impacts and joint replacement trends to inform optimal patient care. Hi, Alana. Welcome to the show. Thanks, David. It's great to be here. 
Yeah, no, it's a really, really important topic. I think from the viewpoint of health service utilization and thinking about ways that we need to allocate our precious resources, it's it's a really, really important topic. But before we get into that, just in an effort for both myself and the listeners to get to know you a little bit better, can you just share with the listeners a little bit more about your background and what a typical day looks like? Sure. So I am a physiotherapist by background and I've worked only in hospitals. I've worked in lots of different types of hospitals, so acute hospitals and rehabilitation hospitals. In Australia, we have public and private hospitals. I've worked in both and I work mostly, I've worked mostly in orthopedics. So working with patients who've had joint replacement surgery most commonly, but also after other types of orthopedic surgeries and also working with people who've had various types of injuries and that might Um, include fractures. So that's where I started off. And I guess that sort of sparked my interest in joint replacement surgery and the care of people with sort of more severe osteoarthritis. And then I made a bit of a shift and and moved into research. So I went back to university and and did a PhD where I was looking at the well-being and quality of life of patients with severe osteoarthritis while they were on the waiting list for joint replacement surgery. And that sort of kicked off the research career from there. Wonderful. And on a day-to-day basis at the moment, what proportion of your time do you spend doing research, teaching, and are you still doing any clinical work? So the clinical work I've actually just put on hold from earlier this year to focus on the research. And, uh, you know, for the past decade or so, I've been able to combine clinical work and research by doing the research during the week and doing clinical work on weekends. So sort of weekend rosters and and filling in where needed. And obviously that's not such an easy (laughs) juggle from a family and work-life perspective. So I'm now focusing on the research. So a typical day for me would be predominantly research and that would be overseeing sort of the different research research studies that I'm doing, maybe sort of getting new research studies set up, spend quite a lot of time of my during my day and my week in writing grants to try and get funding for, for new research studies. I also do a lot of research training for, for new researchers. So that might be my PhD students or my honours students. So guiding them through their research pro- program and, and supervising them. And then the other sort of part of my role, which I really enjoy, I've done it I think the last six years is leading the editorial board of the Journal of Physiotherapy. So steering the the journal in growing direction and and making sure we're publishing research that's really important for the practice of physiotherapy. Oh, wonderful. Sounds like you've got an incredibly full plate. I might pick your brain at some point about that role at the Journal of Physiotherapy. I'm just taking up a big role at osteoarthritis and cartilage, which will be entertaining nonetheless. But before, before I get too distracted, when you're not at work, what do you enjoy doing? Okay, so when I'm not at work, as you know, in Melbourne, like many other places around the world, we've had lots of consecutive lockdowns over many months. So it was a time when we really couldn't get out and eat and be at restaurants. So one of my favourite things to do these days, and you'll find me on a day off or the weekend, is going out for a lovely meal to a restaurant or a cafe with friends or family. Other things I like doing is watching my kids play sport. They're really into basketball. I'll be walking my dog most days. And, uh, you know, when I get a chance traveling to, to anywhere that's, that's warm is usually my preference. Wonderful. And is Ligon Street opening up a little bit more? I know it was pretty quiet there for a long while, but is it getting back to normal in terms of the, the eating environment? Yeah, look, things are picking up definitely in Melbourne and in the city areas. I mean, we've seen probably a shift in um, people's working days at work. So, you know, those kind of places like Ligon Street, the restaurants used to be busy sort of every day. And now probably there's the weekends busier and Fridays are busier and during the week's probably still quiet. But yeah, people are returning to, to restaurant dining for sure. Yeah, it's definitely a wonderful side of Melbourne. And I can imagine during COVID, it really probably decimated the city for a long period of time. On a brighter note, do the girls support any professional basketball teams? One of them used to love Steph Curry, so she she made me buy her the outfit and the hat and all of that, but she's moved away from it now. Okay. One of them just sustained, I think she might actually have a fibula fracture last weekend, so uh, we had that x-rayed yesterday. But that, they enjoy their basketball, and I think it's a good social sport for them. There's a lot of basketball goes on in the Hunter family, and including watching and playing. So, yeah, it's great, great sport. Now, Lana, if you had to describe yourself in five words, what would they be? First of all, I'd say organised. I think that's what people would say about me. Caring, I think I would like to say. People person, I'm not sure if that counts as one or two words. Amusing, sometimes that's intentional, sometimes that's not intentional. And, you know, conscientious, hardworking. They all sound like wonderful, wonderful qualities. Now, obviously, the main content of today is really 
talking about the demand for joint replacement and projections related to that and what can be done about potentially what looks like an insurmountable trajectory with regards to joint replacement requirement. But before we get into the main content, what are the common joint replacement surgeries performed and are they effective? Okay, so if we think about the most common types, hip replacement, knee replacement, shoulder replacement would be the most common sort of joints that get replaced. There are also ankle replacements and elbow replacements, but they're performed in, in much uh, lower numbers than the other, the bigger joints. And then when we think about the kind of categories of joint replacement, there's two main categories. So there's what's called a partial joint replacement, where perhaps only one surface of the joint is replaced or in the case of the knee, only one of the compartments. So in the knee, we have an inner inside compartment and outside compartment. We also have behind the kneecap, that's the patellofemoral compartment. So with a partial knee replacement, you might only have one of those replaced. And then we have the total shoulder replacement. So that's where both sides of a joint are replaced, or in the case of the knee, both the inside and outside compartment are replaced, and sometimes even the back of the patella is replaced as well. So they're the main types. I will say that for osteoarthritis, the use of those partial procedures has really been declining over time. And that's because uh, the revision rates are much higher than for total knee replacement. So we've seen a real reduction in the use of those single compartment or unicompartmental knee replacements over time. We're seeing reduction in the use of partial shoulder replacements over time as well. They are effective procedures. Joint replacements are effective procedures and many, many patients will experience very large improvements in their pain and improvements in their function after surgery, particularly with hip replacements. And they're very cost-effective. There's lots of studies that have found that even though they're expensive procedures, because people experience such large improvements in their quality of life and pain function that on a big picture level, they can be considered to be cost-effective. Uh, you know, people's individual circumstances are, are different and, and people will... You you know, individually have slightly different outcomes after joint replacement, but by and large, most people experience improvement after surgery. That's a wonderful overview. And for anybody who wants to learn a little bit more about why you might get a joint replacement and what might make you suitable for that particular type of surgery, please take a listen to the episode we did with uh, Michelle Darcy and, and Peter Chung. Now, just extending a little bit upon what you just said there, Alana, from the perspective of knee and hip replacements, how long do they typically last for a primary or first replacement? Yeah, that's a great question. That's something I think patients will very commonly ask their surgeon when, they, when they're first sort of recommended to have surgery. So, you know, it's interesting that's really changed over time. I remember back to when I first started working as a physiotherapist and patients were commonly told they would last 10 years, maybe 15 years at the most. And that's really changed over time with improvements in the, the materials that are used in the joint replacements and the design of those joint replacements. And now, you know, most patients can expect probably close to 20 years out of a joint replacement. So that's something that's really improved over time. And the reasons why someone might need a, a redo or a second joint replacement on that same joint has also changed over time as we've seen improvements in the, the materials and the design of the joint replacements. And, you know, if, if they last 20 years, how long is it before a person might expect to redeem some improvement following the surgery? So what's the trajectory of improvement immediately following the surgery? And when can they expect to have symptoms that are better than what they were preoperatively? Yeah, I think that's really important for people to understand. So it's a slightly different trajectory from, from my experience and from what I've read as well for hips versus knee replacement surgery. So for hip replacement surgery, there's a definite very early improvement in pain and in function. And so, you know, I've had many patients who've said to me in the first couple of days after surgery, you know what, that really deep aching pain, that pain I've had in my thigh, the side of my hip, it, it's gone now after the hip replacement. Yes, I've still got that sort of um, fresh pain or the new pain around the wound. And obviously that's to be expected, just had surgery, um, but it's not the same kind of pain that I've had. And they're able to get up and moving. And, you know, within the first couple of weeks, they're walking pretty good distances. And by six weeks, they're feeling pretty comfortable with their new hip replacement and, and doing most of the activities that they need to be doing, you know, independently in their daily lives. So that's hip replacements. With knee replacements, it's a slightly different trajectory. And that's for a couple of different reasons, I guess. So the pain tends to be a bit more, um, how should we say it, David, maybe a bit more acute, I think, in the early days after knee replacement. So maybe higher levels of pain with knee replacement in the early days. 
And there's also commonly a lot of swelling and tightness around the, the replaced knee in those first few weeks. And sometimes I think that can come as a bit of a shock to patients too. So the knee can feel quite tight and stiff. And so the early days with knee replacement, it's really important that we get that pain control right and people are taking their prescribed medications at the right time so that they can you know, actively take part in their rehabilitation and do the exercises that we, we need them to do to regain their movement and strength. So knees, I would say that they're, they're on a, a period of in, you know, improvement really over over the first six months in terms of the pain reducing and the knee range of movement improving. But, you know, by the six-week mark, again, patients are usually walking pretty good distances after a knee replacement, but it is about getting that pain control right in the early days. Superb. And I think that's a wonderful overview and hopefully information that will be really informative for a lot of people who are listening. Now, you've been doing a lot of work with the, the Joint Replacement Registry. I guess I just wanted to better understand how do you look at the volume of replacement surgeries that are actually being conducted? Now we can do that in a few different ways. So the first and easiest way is just purely to look at the number of joint replacements that are performed each year. So just the count of procedures. And, you know, that provides us with some information. It sort of gives us an idea, for example, if we multiply that number of procedures by the average cost of a procedure, it lets us sort of get an overview of what that's costing the health system and perhaps how that's changing over time. But it doesn't really help us understand how the use of joint replacement is changing over time because we don't understand sort of what I call the denominator of the equation. So if I kind of put that in an example for you, let's say in one year you might have a 1,000 hip replacements that are being performed and then 20 years later we might have 2,000 hip replacements that are being performed. It's perfectly correct to say the number of those hip replacements has doubled over time. But what we don't know about is the size of the population in those two sort of different time periods. So the size of the population in that country might have doubled over time as well. And yes, you've seen a growth in the number, but as a sort of proportion of the population, it's it stayed constant. So that's the first way of doing it. The second way of doing it, and that, this is what's commonly published in, in different studies, is to look at a rate of joint replacement. And that can be called different things like a surgery rate or an incidence rate or a utilisation rate. But what we're doing when we're calculating that is we're taking into account the size of the population. So we might report 100 hip replacements, for example, per 100,000 people. And that allows us to compare sort of fairly different periods in time and maybe males versus females and, and different age groups. Then the third sort of way of doing it, and this is something that I've been using a lot in recent years, and, and prior to that, you know, it was done a lot in the cancer sort of field and, and not so much in our field, but is looking at something called lifetime risk. So that's asking the question, what is someone's sort of likelihood of having, let's say, a hip replacement over the course of their lifetime? And the way we calculate that takes into account a few different things. It takes into account the rate of the joint replacement, also the life expectancy for people in a population, and also what we call all-cause mortality rates, so sort of survival rates. And we pull all that together. It gives us a percentage, which I think is, you know, relatively easy for people to understand. You know, your lifetime risk is, is 10% of having hip replacement, let's say. And we can compare that across countries for those international comparisons because we've taken into account those population factors like life expectancy and mortality as well. Just while we're dwelling on this for a second, how do the rates in Australia compare to other countries? You know, presumably have a similar healthcare system, whether that be, you know, the US, Germany, UK. The rates are pretty comparable. There's some between country differences. And I mean, there's even between, you know, different jurisdictions. If we looked at different states within a country or, or different cities within a country, there would be some natural variation. And that's probably comes down to the fact that we don't have clear defined thresholds really for when someone should have a joint replacement. So, you know, that decision making comes down to sort of all sorts of local factors and health system factors. It might be based on the, the surgeon's preferences and opinions. It might be based on the patient's opinions. So there is that natural variation at the point at which someone is offered surgery. And that probably accounts for some of that variation between countries as much as anything else. So you mentioned the lifetime risk was 10% and hopefully I'm not misquoting you on that. And has that remained pretty standard over time or is that changing as, you know, more surgeries occur? 
Yeah, so we've looked at that for hip replacement, for knee replacement, for shoulder replacement now as well. Actually, our sort of latest information for Australia was that the lifetime risk of of knee replacement in Australia is about 20% for females and about 15% for males. For hip replacement, it's a bit lower. There's fewer of those procedures. So it's about 13% for females and 11% for males. So we did a couple of studies where we actually had data for five countries. So Australia plus four Scandinavian countries. And we looked at how that lifetime risk had changed over time. And for all of those countries for hips and knees, the lifetime risk had increased over time. And that's just reflecting, you know, the increasing use of those procedures in all of those countries. And we've seen that with shoulder replacement as well. Again, I guess just to clear up any misconception here, I mean, the lifetime risk, whether that's 10, 15 or 20 percent, it still suggests the majority of people with osteoarthritis are not requiring a joint replacement during during their lifetime. Yeah, that's right. I think that's important to understand because, you know, we, we often talk about in osteoarthritis, we've got sort of a pyramid, I guess, of different interventions that we would offer people with osteoarthritis. Many people will fall into those milder or moderate categories of, um, of having hip or knee osteoarthritis, and they can be managed very successfully with non-surgical treatments, um, education, exercise, weight management, all those sorts of things you've probably discussed in other episodes. And then it's sort of, you know, it's the top of that pyramid, the smaller population of people with much more severe or end-stage osteoarthritis who are going to potentially require joint replacement surgery. So yes, absolutely. To put that in context, it's a small proportion of the overall population that we see with osteoarthritis. Yeah, I mean, I I think as you say, it's just important to clear up any misconception. I think for many people, they see it as an inevitable part of their journey with osteoarthritis. And I I think it's really important to clearly state that it's not. Now, Obviously, Melbourne has been severely impacted by COVID and we haven't necessarily had the same impact in in Sydney. But what impact has COVID had on joint replacement surgery requirement given, you know, elective surgery shutdowns and people not wanting to go to hospital? So we've had, you know, the best part of two years of surgery cancellations and postponements in Melbourne. And so that's cancellations of non-urgent surgeries. And uh, I should, when I use that term non-urgent, I, I should clarify that I don't mean to be disrespectful. I fully understand that for someone who's, you know, in severe pain and having a lot of difficulty with their day-to-day activities, that for them having surgery isn't urgent consideration. I'm just using the classification that sort of hospitals and health systems use. So we've had a couple of years of that. So in terms of our National Joint Replacement Registry, for now, they've only reported data on the first year of the pandemic, so 2020 compared to the previous year, 2019. And they reported that 7,000 fewer joint replacements were performed in that year versus the year before. But I think it's important to understand that's just relative to 2019 numbers. It doesn't take into account the kind of anticipated growth increase in numbers that might have been expected year on year. So probably if you take that into account, we're closer to about 11,000 joint replacement procedures that were missed in one year. We don't have the data yet for 2021. They'll be coming out, you know, in the next few months in the annual report. I know for other countries, so I've been looking at some of the, the data that's come out for the UK and the US. So I think the UK reported for that year 2020, there were over 100,000 joint replacements that were missed. The US, I think, has reported several hundreds of thousands of joint replacements that were missed. And, you know, we think of them as their numbers, their procedures, but they're people. They're people who are waiting for surgery, who, you know, probably need to have their joint replacement done. And so it's an unmet need for surgery that will need to be caught up at some time in the future. And how we go about that is not very clear to anyone. I've seen estimates from overseas that it will be, you know, several years worth of catching up because it's not like we just have that ready capacity in the health system, the hospital system to say, well, let's just get those extra 7,000 joint replacements done this year. We can't do that because, A, we've got this year's worth of joint replacements to do. Plus, the, you know, the hospital system is very much still focused on the acute side of things. It's still in the pandemic, still got a lot of acute hospital admissions for that. There, there's staff shortages, all those sorts of things. So it's not just as simple as we'll make up these ones that have been missed. It's really going to have impacts for, I would say, many years ahead. I've seen an estimate of a decade for the UK, but many years, I would suggest. Yeah, I mean, obviously devastating for people who are lining up waiting for surgery um, and have been presumably waiting for a year or two, anticipating that they may not necessarily have that need met in in the immediate future. Now, Alana, you mentioned obviously the changes that have occurred with COVID and, you know, the many thousands of people who've been put out from that. 
What's the usual demand? So what's what's the usual, you know, if we're talking about Australia, the UK, the US, what's the volume of surgery that typically occurs for knee and hip replacements? So hip replacements, we usually have in Australia about 50,000 per year. Um, knee replacements, about 60,000. And then there's also about 8,000 shoulder replacements to add into that. So roughly 110, 120,000 per year, but increasing each year. And 2020 was the first year that we've seen since the registry started where the numbers of procedures actually declined and obviously due to COVID. I hate to put you on the spot, but do you have any suggestion of what the numbers are in the US or the UK? Look, I don't have kind of up-to-date numbers for those countries, but, you know, I've looked at their sorts of projections for what's likely to happen in the future based on sort of previous demand and changes over time. And, you know, I've seen estimates for the US where they predicted sort of a 600% increase in primary knee replacement sort of to the year 2030 over maybe over a 15-year period and a, uh, an increase of more than, a, I think, more than 150% in primary hip replacement. So I can't tell you the exact numbers, but they're all projecting increase over time just like we have yeah and so based on based on the recent analysis that you published in bmc musculoskeletal disorders i think you quoted rates of increase that seemed astronomically large to me but do you want to just tell us what they were and over what time periods um, and then we'll hopefully get into some conversations about whether that's realistically going to be meetable based upon what our current health service can provide yeah sure Okay, so that study was a study where we started off with sort of individual data from the Australian National Joint Replacement Registry. So data from, I think, from memory, almost half a million um, different uh, hip and knee replacement procedures. And we looked at the rates of joint replacement over a decade. And then what we wanted to do was we wanted to see what would likely happen in the future given the anticipated sort of growth in the population that we're expecting and ageing of the population as we're expecting. And so to do that sort of population side of things, we were able to get data from the Australian Bureau of Statistics, which publishes census and projections data. And so what we did was we wanted to look at two different scenarios. So the first was quite a conservative sort of scenario. So um, the last year of that 10-year period of data, we kept the rate of joint replacement sort of fixed. And we said, what would happen if we just kept that rate of joint replacement fixed and then we've got population growth and ageing on top of that. So that's our kind of conservative sort of estimate. The second scenario, we wanted to ask the question, what would happen if joint replacements continued to increase at the rate that they had been increasing over 10 years, plus overlay that with the population growth and ageing that we were expecting. And that's sort of more of an exponential kind of growth scenario, if you like. And so those numbers that you're quoting, that over 276% increase in knee replacement and 208% increase in hip replacement, that's based on that second scenario with continued rate of growth plus the population changes. And that's going to, if that eventuates, it's going to obviously come at a huge cost. But what we've actually done since, David, is we've, we've gone back now that we've got sort of five, six years actually of actual data for some of that projection time, we've been able to go back and compare what's actually happened. And this is pre-pandemic compared to what we predicted would happen. And actually, the actual numbers fit pretty well within those two scenarios. They're, they're not exponential, but they're above that constant rate for sure. And so that way of predicting is actually not a bad way of predicting future joint replacement, notwithstanding the kind of COVID impacts that we've talked about. What type of costs would we be sustaining as a healthcare system if that were to occur? So based on those exponential projections, it was about five, you know, Australian dollars, we're talking $5.3 billion each year. That's a huge cost, isn't it, to the budget? Because, you know, health budgets, they don't just deal with osteoarthritis. They've got to manage all sorts of acute and chronic healthcare conditions. And every bit of money you put towards one condition takes away from another condition. So that's a huge amount of money in Australia where we kind of have these public and private health systems that cost is borne partly by the government and partly by the the private health insurers who, who have to pass that on to members through premiums. Yeah. And of the projected increase, you also factored in the impact of people being above a healthy weight. And so what type of impact is obesity having on, on these rates and what impact would a public health intervention to reduce weight likely have? 
So we did that for the knee replacement analysis because that's sort of the strongest evidence about the relationship between obesity and, you know, needing to have a knee replacement surgery. There's less evidence there for the hip replacements. So what we also looked at was, again, Bureau of Statistics data looking at obesity trends over time. And we projected if those obesity trends were going to continue growing as they had done, what would that add in terms of an additional number of knee replacements that might be required each year? And projecting that forward at the same rate, we found that that would probably, you know, you need to be performing an extra almost 25,000 knee replacements each year if that were to continue. And then we wanted to look at it in the other direction. So if we had, a, you know, a successful public health kind of campaign or intervention where we were able to reduce obesity at the population level, what that what might that look like in terms of the, the savings and in terms of reduced numbers of joint replacement and money saved as well? And we don't know if that's possible or how much is possible. So we did what, you know, a sliding scale. We looked at a 1% reduction and up to a 5% reduction. That would also have, you know, big savings in terms of um, knee replacements that could be avoided and, uh, and money saved for the health system. Yeah, so Alana, one of the obviously factors here that's driving presumably the increased surgical demand are the demographic shifts that are occurring in our community, both with regards body weight and other changes. But what, what are the main things that are driving that exponential change that you projected? Good question. So there's a few different things going on. So we've obviously got an aging population. Osteoarthritis is by and large something that's traditionally associated with older age. Of course, younger people can be affected, but more older people means more people with osteoarthritis and potentially severe osteoarthritis needing joint replacement. We've also got things like greater, you know, we've been, become better over time in, in the management of patients before and after surgery, such that joint replacement surgery can now be offered to, you know, older people, more frail people. It's expanded to a wider group of, of patients. So that's part of the increase probably as well. I think in the community, we've got much better sort of awareness of successful outcomes from joint replacement. So, you know, many people will know someone in their family or friendship circle who's had a good outcome after joint replacement and that acceptance of that surgical procedure has been improving over time. So I think they're the sorts of, they're the sorts of main things. And also actually I add to that, you know, I think What's also changing is that there's sort of people are wanting to, to stay more active and have a higher quality of life into older age. And, you know, that's a very reasonable expectation, I think. So having a joint replacement might assist them with that as well. So those growth trends that you've spoken about, Alana, seem quite dramatic to me, obviously above 200%. Is our healthcare system going to be able to sustain that magnitude of change? And if, if not, why not? No, I don't see how it can. I think, you know, even just seeing what's happened in the last two years with the cancellations and postponements and now the catch-up that's required and, you know, in our setting at least, the blowout in public hospital waiting lists, I think that's just given us a tiny taste of how we're not going to be able to manage that. So I think there's kind of a, a few different sort of things we can look at. So the first is we need to make sure that the patients who are having joint replacement surgery are the ones who really need to be having joint replacement surgery. So there's studies from the US and other places that have suggested that there's a proportion of patients who are having what we call unwarranted or inappropriate knee replacements. They might not actually need it and they might not have tried everything else first. And I think that's important because we know that there's you know, a large group of patients who sort of go straight to surgery and they bypass the other non-surgical things. So I think we sort of need some systems in place where we can make sure that people have really exhausted all of their non-surgical management options, things that we know can be effective at any stage of disease sort of severity and try all that first before they're referred for surgery. The other sorts of things I think we need to think about is how we manage people who are waiting for surgery. So we don't want people to deteriorate in terms of their, their function, their muscle strength, you know, not being out of work, all those sorts of things. So we need some sort of, sort of systems for monitoring patients who are waiting long periods for surgery and, and fast tracking those who need it so that by the time they get to their surgery, they're not so debilitated that they're going to have quite a poor outcome. I think there's also things we can do at a kind of public health messaging sort of level. And I think We've kind of forgotten about that over time. You know, David, you'll probably remember back in the 1980s, we've had fantastic public health campaigns, mass media campaigns in Australia, like we've had slip, slop, slap campaign for sun protection, preventing skin cancer that was really effective. We've had the Life Be In It campaign focused on physical activity for younger people and older people. We don't have, we don't seem to have big, you know, positive public health messaging like that anymore. And ironically, back then we only had television, print media, 
radio. Now we've got social media in all its various forms. We've, we've got all these channels that we could be using for that positive health messaging. So like, you know, I don't know, I'm not good with marketing, but a campaign around joint protection for life, building awareness of what's needed at different stages of life. Maybe that's the sort of thing we, we need to be thinking of to prevent it at, at an earlier stage. Completely agree. We need to be starting a hell of a lot sooner than we currently are, particularly if we're going to change some of the demographic trends around body weight or injury. We, we need to be starting in young adults and kids, but that's for another day. Now, you've done some wonderful modeling around what we were just talking about, really looking at the impact of alternative methods of management here and particularly thinking about opportunities and a shift towards making sure that appropriate exercise and nutrition management and weight reduction and medic, potential medication advice occurs. Can you just tell us a, a little bit about that analysis and what the impacts of that might be? So, you know, there's various forms of exercise therapy and education programs that have shown to be effective in, in symptomatic improvement. You know, they can improve people's pain by about 30%. And in real world settings, we know that they're sort of performing as well as they are in kind of controlled trial settings. But in Australia, anyway, there's sort of, it's very haphazard, the sort of non-surgical care that someone might get. It's very fragmented. So these sorts of programs that I'm talking about have been rolled out quite broadly in Scandinavia, you know, in Denmark. Um, there's the GLAD program, and that's been implemented in other countries around the world. And they're these structured and supervised exercise therapy and education programs. So they go for six to eight weeks, and there's education components too. Those sorts of programs have been tested in, in clinical trials. And with a particular, you know, a couple of studies have looked particularly at whether people can avoid having joint replacement surgery after those programs. And there was one study that came out from Denmark, and it showed that at the one-year mark, people who were eligible to have knee replacement surgery, so they had moderate to severe knee osteoarthritis, so were eligible to have surgery. When they were randomised to this, in that case, it was a 12-week program, I believe, 74% um, of people were able to avoid knee replacement in that first year. When they followed them up a year later, still 68% had avoided. So we kind of thought, well, what would happen if we sort of looked at that type of program, if we rolled it out, let's say, across Australia, and then looked at what the potential might be for people to avoid knee replacement and what the savings for the health system might be. And so we did some modelling in that way, looking at the um, different outcomes. And what we found was that, you know, there's the potential for really huge savings. So even if we increase the, the cost of that program per participant, we might still be looking at, at saving sort of $600 million in avoided knee replacements in the short term. I have to emphasise that we don't know yet what happens further down the track. Maybe we're just shifting that to later years but because there's such a difference in cost between you know that kind of program versus the high cost of a joint replacement surgery there's really potential for, for big health savings there but we don't have those programs rolled out at a wide level and we don't have funding for people to go and do those programs without having to pay you know a lot of out-of-pocket costs themselves so we need this kind of evidence to get reimbursements for people to be able to attend those programs. Yeah, I think particularly in light of what you've been saying about the impacts of COVID, uh, the increasing trajectory of demand, this has really got to a point now where this we really need to be laser focused on making these things happen from a general community perspective and making them more available. And as you really rightly pointed out, ensuring that reimbursement is not a barrier to people participating in those programs. Anything else that you want to say about the topic at hand before we get into another segment of the show? The only thing I guess I would say is that I think, you know, we we're talking earlier about what a typical sort of recovery after joint replacement would be. I would really strongly encourage patients, once you've made the decision to go ahead and have joint replacement surgery, I think it's really important to arm yourself with information about what you can expect during the recovery period and what's a likely outcome for you. Um, obviously, everybody will be different, have different circumstances, but I think having realistic expectations of what can be achieved after joint replacement is important. So a lot of work that, you know, that we do and that surgeons should be doing as well is to provide that information to really help patients set realistic expectations for what can be achieved in terms of their pain and function after surgery. Is there some readily accessible point that people can go to to get that information that you're aware of, Alana? 
Yeah, so a lot of the um, sort of orthopaedic surgeon societies or associations around the world have that sort of patient information on their website. So the American Academy of Orthopaedic Surgeons has some patient-facing sort of information there. I quite like there's a website called OrthoAnswer which I think was developed actually by one of the hospitals here in Melbourne, but it's, you know, it's applicable more, more broadly as well. And it goes through some expected timelines after surgery and what you're likely to do in the early days and, you know, hip replacement, knee replacement, shoulder replacement. So I think that's a good starting point. And don't be afraid to ask those questions of your surgeons. Will I be able to do this activity? Will I be able to comfortably kneel? All those sorts of things that can help you set realistic expectations and goals for after your surgery. Yeah, cannot emphasize that enough. I think that the transparency and disclosure here about making sure that you're as well informed as you can be is really, really important. So we'll include those links that Alana just mentioned, as as well as the studies that Alana has been responsible for in, in the show notes so that people can access them a little bit more easily. So just a quick break from today's content. And before we dive into the second half of this episode, we love getting your feedback, things we should focus on what we're doing well, and ideas for new topics to discuss. These mainly come through our email on hello at jointaction.info, but we would love to hear more through our Twitter account at jointaction.org. There, you can hear from your fellow listeners, and we can have a lively discussion about new topics and what questions you might have. So again, that's at jointaction.org on Twitter, and we look forward to hearing from you. And again. If you've got a friend who has osteoarthritis, most of our listeners come from recommendations. So please, if you're enjoying listening to the show and benefiting from it, recommend it to a friend. Now, in again, the effort to get to know you a little bit better, Alana, we're just going to get into what's called the rapid fire round. So I'm going to throw something at you and you please just feel free to rapidly fire back. But favorite book. Look, I couldn't pick one, but I'd say anything with a kind of plot twist where I don't anticipate what's coming next would be a, a direction of reading that I would go in. Favourite movie? Shawshank Redemption. Oh, I'm with you there. Dog or a cat person? Dog. Yeah, no, exactly. Favourite quote? You only regret what you don't do. It's that, you know, fear of missing out, right? Very, very true. What's your favourite food? Cheese. Uh, as someone who's just become lactose intolerant, I'm Badly missing that. But do you have a bad habit? Yes, eating too much cheese. <laughs> Where would you next like to go on holiday? Paris. Both we would. But what superpower would you have if you could have one? I don't know if it's a superpower, but being able to create a few extra hours in the day, I think would be very, very useful. Being a time god, yeah. If you could meet anyone dead or alive, who would it be? Nigella Lawson. She's my ultimate foodie icon. Wonderful. What would you do if money were not an issue? I think I'd probably like to spend a few months in France or Italy, learning the language, living like a local, travelling around little villages and towns. Yeah. Sounds superb. Somewhere down there in Provence. Yeah. Now, if you could do anything to improve health and healthcare, what would you do? I think it would be around improving access. So, you know, we still know that there's many different forms of barriers to people accessing the healthcare they need. They take all sorts of physical and non-physical forms. So making sure that everyone has access to the type of healthcare they need and the preventative um, measures they need, I think that would be a pretty important goal. Yeah, so, so important because, you know, the inequity in our healthcare system is really making it very hard for people to get in and get the care that they receive. And in part, that's stimulated by the reimbursement structure that really needs to change. Now, before I get on my soapbox too far, why do you do what you do? What's your motivation? That's a good question. So, I mean, I think I went into physiotherapy in the first place to help people. I think as we all do as health professionals and, you know, that's a very rewarding career to be to be working with people in that way. But then I think with the research, you know, with the kind of evidence that I'm generating, it's that really I always refer to it as the kind of big picture approach to understand this big problem of osteoarthritis. And that sort of, you know, it's the data that's going into informing new models of care and clinical care standards for osteoarthritis and uh, sort of strategic action plans for how we're going to, to manage arthritis. And so, you know, convincing, like I've said before, convincing governments and private health funders that we do need to invest in effective osteoarthritis management and preventing it in the first place. So that's why I do what I do and hopefully it's helping. 
Well, I think you're making a great difference, and I really hope you continue to make an impression upon those policymakers because the work that you're doing is going to be so, so important to the decisions that we make as healthcare providers and as policymakers moving forward. Now, if you could have a billboard with anything on it, what would it be and why? Look, I think um, it comes back to the education that we provide to our patients with osteoarthritis. So I think from a physio's point of view anyway, I think we see a lot of patients who are quite fearful to exercise and they're, they're, fear, they're sort of scared that they're going to cause more damage to their joint. And I think that's not helped by all the terms we've been using over the years, you know, wear and tear, bone on bone. But, you know, exercise is safe for any stage of, of knee and hip osteoarthritis. You can safely exercise. We might need to, to tweak the way you do it and change the program you do and, and refine that a little bit, but it's safe. So don't be afraid to exercise and use your joint. We really need to, to be able to do that. Yeah, really, really important message, I think, for everybody who has osteoarthritis. And just in closing, Alana, is there any one piece of advice, knowledge or wisdom that you'd like to give for people with osteoarthritis? And it may be just rehashing your last answer. I think it's important to do something. You know, the pain of osteoarthritis can fluctuate from day to day or within a day. And you might have days where you really don't feel like you're able to do anything. So on those days, just a short walk, some basic exercises is, is a perfect starting point. You'll have other days where you feel able and you can do more and seek advice if you're not if you don't know the, the exercises that you, you can be doing for your knee or for your hip, do seek advice from a, a you know, suitably experienced and qualified health professional because they can teach you what to do, show you how to do it, and then that's something that you can maintain yourself. That's a wonderful way to close. Alana, thank you so much for spending a little bit of time with us, sharing the insights, the wisdom that you have, and hopefully you continue to make the really important impact that you are making to the field. My pleasure, David. Thank you. It's been great speaking with you. So hopefully you found today's content helpful in informing you about decisions that you might need to make, both about joint replacement surgery, but also politically about the healthcare system and the impact osteoarthritis is having. Joint replacement surgeries are increasingly being performed and they go to the, you know many hundreds of thousands around the world and potentially millions of people getting joint replacements every year. But if you look at the lifetime risk, that's definitely the minority of people requiring a joint placement in their lifetime. Alana's done some wonderful work looking at the projections of joint replacement requirement, really demonstrating that it's not sustainable based upon our current both supply and demand. So in that context, it's really important for us to think about public health interventions that we might be able to use to reduce weight in the community and or alternative programs to roll people into to provide more conservative options around exercise, weight reduction, and pain relief prior to if they need surgery at all. So again, thank you so much for listening. Really appreciate your time and attention to these important topics. And between now and when we next speak, please do take care of yourselves. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, visit www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.